0: amen praise the lord well we're talking in these wednesday night services about how to be led by the holy ghost and we're using three specific scriptures as a beginning point for this uh, uh, this series kind of our golden text scriptures romans chapter 8 verse 14 and verse 16 for as many as are led by the spirit of god they are the sons of god every child of god has a right to be led by the holy ghost but then that begs the question how is he going to do that How's he going to lead us? If we if we know that he wants to lead us, then we have to learn how his leading comes about. Verse sixteen of Romans eight says, "The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God." So the number one way he's going to lead us and guide us is by the inward witness. Now in the Old Testament, in Proverbs chapter twenty and verse twenty-seven, it says, "The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord." Another translation say many other translations say the lamp of the Lord. I like a modern paraphrase because the only way that they had to to light their way in the Old Testament was lamps or candles. But a modern paraphrase says the guiding lamp. The spirit of man is the guiding lamp of the Lord. I like that. I believe it brings out the, the meaning of what's being said in the scripture. Searching all the inward parts of the belly. Now we know that man's made in God's image. God said let us make man in our image and let him have dominion. The Bible says that God is a spirit. Therefore, by definition, man must be a spirit being. The unfortunate reality is that much of the church world is ignorant of that fact, or at least ignorant of the importance of that fact, and has failed to, to plumb the depths of the real meaning and real benefits of being a spirit being and being led by the Holy Ghost. Now, we know also that man is a three-part being. He is a spirit. He has or possesses the soul, which is defined as the mind, the will, and the emotions. And he lives in a body. Now, each one of those parts of man has a voice. We know that feelings are the voice of the body. Those are easy to identify. We know that reason is the voice of the soul or the intellect. Well, what's the voice of the spirit then? Well, the voice of the spirit is the conscience. It's sometimes referred to as that still small voice. So if we learn to, to follow the leading, the inward witness of the Holy Ghost, learn to listen to that inward voice, then we can always know that the Holy Ghost will lead us into victory. Now, there are three main ways that the Holy Ghost will lead us. One is by the inward witness. Second is by the inward voice. And the third is by the voice of the Holy Spirit within our own hearts, our own spirits. The voice of the Holy Spirit, when He speaks to us, it's a little bit more authoritative. Now turn with me to to, uh, Acts chapter 10. Let's see an example of this in the Scripture. We're in the same church that they were in. We've got the same salvation they've got. We've got the same Holy Ghost that they had. So we should have the same experiences that they have. Amen? Amen. Acts chapter 10, it tells us about... uh, it was around lunchtime, the noon hour. And Peter went up on the housetop while they made ready the, the food. And it says, well, let me just start reading in verse 9. And on the morrow as they went on their journey and drew nine to the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. That's noon. And he became very hungry and would have eaten. But when they, while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and a certain vessel descending unto him. As it had been a great sheet knitted to four corners and let down to the earth. Wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake unto him again the second time, What God has cleansed, thou, that call not thou common. This was done thrice, three times, and the vessel was received up again into heaven. Now, when Peter doubted in himself what this vision he had seen should mean, I want you to notice that. He didn't understand what God was trying to get across to him. Now, we've got examples, a number of examples in the Scripture, of people being led by visions and having visions and experiencing spectacular things like angels appearing to them and things like that. But you can't ever find anything, any place where the Bible says that we can seek after those things. I know that when we're immature in spiritual things, we hear about this, this kind of stuff. And we think, oh boy, wouldn't that be great? I want that. But then as we get, grow up and mature spiritually, we grow out of that with the, the knowledge and the understanding that that's not promised to anybody. And if God sees fit to do that, then so be it. But even if you examine the, the times in the scripture where it occurs, it doesn't work out the way that we've got it figured out that it would. For example, we've got the idea, and I, I think I speak for all of us here, most of us have the idea at least that if we had a vision, then we'd know everything that God wanted to do and just the way he wanted to do it. Well, Peter has a vision and he's left clueless. He has, actually, he has three different visions same vision three times and he can't figure out what's going on isn't that interesting God goes to the trouble to give Peter a vision three different times it must be important because he shows him three times must be important because he tells him the same thing three times rise Peter kill and eat Peter says no every time I guess and so the Lord answers back and says don't call common what I've cleansed Peter has no clue what it means there's no direction in this. It's revelation, it's supernatural. But there's no direction in this. Back to verse 17. Now, when Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, which means he didn't know, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And called and asked whether Simon, which was surnamed Peter, was lodged there. Now, notice verse 19. Notice the difference in what happens next. While Peter thought on the vision. Well, we know what he's thinking about. He's trying to figure out what all this stuff means. While Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said unto him. The Spirit said unto him, Behold, three men seek thee. Arise, therefore, and get thee down, and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Now he's got direction. Now how did the Holy Spirit speak to him? It says that the Holy Spirit said something, so this has got to be the voice of the Holy Spirit within him. Is it the inward witness? No. Is it the inward voice? No. No. It's the voice of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit speaks to us, it's a much more authoritative voice. Brother Hagin used to talk about it and used to use this example, and I, I, in, in my experience, I think it fits. He said, when the Holy Spirit speaks to you, it's like something somebody's talking to you from over your shoulder. Somebody's standing next to you and speaks clearly and forcefully. He gave a lot of examples in talking about these things of when the Holy Spirit would speak to him and he'd look behind him to see if it was somebody standing behind him that said it. Well, it can't be an audible voice. If it was an audible voice, then everybody would have heard it too. But it seems to us like it is audible because it's just that forceful. Now, why did the Holy Spirit have to operate this way with Peter? Well, the remainder of the chapter tells us about him going down to Cornelius' house. The next day, he begins to preach to him. Notice he begins in verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth. He's going to the Gentiles. First time the gospel has really been preached to the Gentiles. Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. When did he figure that out? Sometime between the vision that he had the day before and and the point where he started preaching. See, folks, left on our own, we have an opportunity to misinterpret or fail to recognize the true meaning of supernatural and even spectacular things. That's why the Bible never says as many people are led by visions, as many people are for as many as are led by visions, they are the sons of God. It's the inward witness. Somewhere, overnight, between the time that Peter had seen the vision three times and when he gets to Cornelius' house and begins to preach, somewhere he gains understanding from the inside of him where the Holy Ghost dwells. He gains understanding that God is sending the gospel to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are just as accepted before God as the Jews. Now would he have gotten there? Would he have gotten in the the will of God in this case? Without the Holy Spirit speaking to him? I don't believe he would. This was an issue that Peter had all through his life. You remember that many years later. In the uh, region of the world that we know of as Galatia. Peter was eating and drinking with the Gentiles. And then when the Jews from Jerusalem came down there, he separated himself. And Paul had to rebuke him publicly over it and draw his attention back to the fact that righteousness is by faith and not according to heritage. This was something that Peter dealt with throughout, uh, well, throughout much of his life. I, I Maybe it would be incorrect to say throughout his whole life, but much of it, even after he was saved and operating as a, an apostle in ministry. Now, he gets called on the carpet for this. You remember the story how the Holy Ghost falls on the people that are there. They begin to speak with other tongues. Peter is smart enough to take some other Jewish believers with him down to Cornelius' house to be a witness of what's going on and why why he went. But in chapter 11, it talks about how that he has to explain before the elders in Jerusalem why he went to the Gentiles and preached the gospel. Now you'd think that when Jesus said "Go into all the world and preach the gospel," he didn't just mean all the Jewish world, but apparently they were slow to get that. Now Peter, explaining to the to the elders in Jerusalem, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, he tells about the vision, and then it says in verse eleven. This is chapter eleven, verse eleven. And behold, immediately there were three men already come into the house where I was, sent from Caesarea under me. And notice how he says it in verse twelve And the Spirit bade me go with them. The Spirit bade me go with them. Now we know from what the Scriptures already told us what that means. It means the Holy Ghost told him to go. Would he have gone if the Holy Ghost hadn't told him to go? Probably not. So this was an important enough situation and the circumstances were such that the Holy Ghost had to tell him, had to speak in some kind of forceful manner to get him to go. We don't have any evidence, there's no record whatsoever of Peter having a witness in his heart or perceiving in his spirit that he should go down to the Caesarea and preach to the Gentiles. This must have been something that was necessary. In my experience, and I don't have a whole lot of experience, but I'm getting more and more as I go, but in my experience, the times where the Holy Ghost has spoken forcefully like that, in what seems like an honorable voice, it's not, but what seems, seemed to me like it was, have always been times where there was rough sailing ahead or difficulties down the road, and I needed something a little bit more spectacular than just the inward witness to hold me steady. I wonder what kind of case Peter would have been able to make if he hadn't had the experience of the vision and the Holy Ghost speaking to him and telling him to go. I wonder if he'd been able to convince the Jews in Jerusalem, the elders of the church, that he did the right thing. I've had uh, uh, a number of occasions where the Holy Ghost has spoken to me about certain things. Most all of them are related to the church. Very few times have I had the Holy Ghost speak in this manner or something similar to this manner about my personal life or personal experience but regarding the church there have been a couple of times one I'll relate to you this was many years ago and came toward the end of the service it was like somebody was standing behind me and I heard these words there's somebody here that needs to be saved this morning it's a Sunday morning service well it was a small crowd and uh, I looked over the crowd and I thought I knew just about everybody there. So if there was somebody that was unsaved, I wasn't aware who they were. But I knew that the Holy Ghost had spoken to me in such a manner, so I gave an altar call at the end of the service and nobody responded. Well, I'm sitting there thinking, all right, Lord, what do we do? Do we wait them out? But I knew what the Holy Ghost had said to me. And so I just said it again, gave another invitation for people to give the hearts to the Lord. Nobody came. And at a time like that, it seems like just a few minutes, it feels like an hour, you know. You can just feel in the crowd, people are getting nervous. Everybody's got their heads bowed and their eyes closed. At least that much helped. But you can just feel nobody's responding and, you know, once you invite somebody to give the heart to the Lord... Finally, I said, there's somebody here that the Lord told me needs to be saved. Well, that helped a little bit, I guess, but still, nobody responded. And and, and I, I really don't know. It was probably just a matter of four or five minutes, perhaps. Maybe not even quite that long, but it felt like forever. Finally, there was a lady that got up from the back row of the auditorium and came down to the front, and we sent her to the prayer room. She got saved. Well, after the service... I asked the Lord about it on the way home. I was in the car and I asked the Lord about it. I said, Lord, why did you speak to me in that way? I don't get it. What was that about? And he didn't say a word. Didn't answer me. I thought, well, it doesn't work that way with everybody. I was hoping that it was going to start working that way with everybody. But it hadn't happened that way since. But it wasn't too many months later that that person had a heart attack and went home to be with Jesus. Well, here the Lord hadn't said a word to me during those that period of time, during those number of months. But I got my answer as soon as they went home. Apparently that was the Lord's best and last opportunity to get them into the kingdom of God before their time came. I'm sure glad the Lord spoke to me so forcefully because if I just had an inward witness I might have thrown out one invitation but I wouldn't have stayed with it. Well if the Holy Ghost is going to bear witness with our spirits and if we're supposed to follow the inward voice which is our conscience and then on occasion the Holy Ghost will speak to us and it's a lot more forceful Doesn't it make sense that we should develop a sensitivity to the Holy Ghost so that we would hear and know his voice? Turn back with me to, uh, well, turn with me to Romans 8. We quote verses 14 and 16, and that is the context that he's speaking, but he says a lot more stuff leading up to it. Chapter 7 tells us about Paul's struggle in his spiritual development how that he found out even after he was saved and filled with the Holy Spirit that his flesh wanted to keep doing wrong things anybody ever found that out that's true for all of us well he was mature enough in the things of God and diligent enough in the scripture to identify the difference between his spirit and his flesh he came to understand what it really meant for a man to be born again, to become a new creature in Christ Jesus. He came to understand that even though his spirit had been made new by the blood of Jesus in accepting the sacrifice that Jesus had made on the cross, that it hadn't done anything to change his body. Now, isn't that interesting? Here's the, one of the greatest men in the history of the church, certainly one of the greatest apostles that we have record of. And he had trouble with his flesh just like you and I do. See, I think a lot of times we get the idea that some people are spiritual enough or so spiritual, so mature in the things of God, or they've got some kind of special relationship with God so that they don't have the same stuff to deal with that we do. But Paul said he did. He came to recognize that there were two forces working in his life. One was his spirit, he said in verse 22 of Romans 7 he said I delight in the law of God after the inward man but then he said in verse 23 but I see another law in my flesh I see another power another force in my flesh so he's talking about the conflict between his spirit and his flesh now that's the context that he begins in Romans chapter 8 so let's just start in verse 1 read down through a few verses to see what he's speaking of he said there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. If you look at the original manuscripts, you'll find out that's where this verse stops. The phrase, who walk out not after the flesh but after the Spirit, is in verse 4. Now, why did the translators take out something from verse 4 and put it in verse 1? I I can only speculate. And it may be that the translators were not willing to accept or were not able to accept the truth of verse 1. That Jesus has removed all condemnation for, from us, irrespective of our behavior. And if you stop and think about it and look at the world, church world around us, that's where denominations hang up or get hung up. Every denomination on the face of the earth that I'm aware of is about rules and regulations, Christianity is not. Now, many people will will take a position that, well, you can't preach it like that, Pastor Mike, because that gives people a license to sin. Well, Paul's telling us that sin is already the issue in the church before you give anybody a license for it. He's just trying to remove the condemnation. Now, why would Paul, and remember, this is a part of Paul's spiritual growth and development. He had to grow and develop just like you and I do. The difference is he didn't have anybody to teach him like we have him to teach us. He had to learn this on his own, just taking these things to the Lord. He knew from the inside of him, the real him, wanted to do right all the time. Wanted to always follow the plan of God. Wanted to always walk in love. But then he knew that he didn't always live up to that. The fact that he identifies the issue of condemnation in Romans chapter 8 verse 1 tells me that he dealt a lot with condemnation himself before he learned the truth. and it wasn't the feeling of condemnation that caused him to grow but rather the knowledge that he was free from it that's what set him free so he says in chapter 8 verse 1 there is therefore because of the work of Jesus because of the sacrifice that he made for us the shedding of his blood there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus I don't know about you but I like to camp there for a while that means no matter what you've done, you can't make God mad at you. It means no matter how bad you've messed up, He's not against you. Now, He may want you to correct it, but He's not against you. He's on your side to help you correct it and make whatever correction, corrections and adjustments that need to be made. But if this verse of Scripture is true, it's impossible for God to ever be against you. If you're his son or his daughter. There is therefore now no condemnation. Doesn't mean you're going to always do things right. Doesn't mean God's always going to be happy when you don't do things right. It just means there's no condemnation because he knows what your flesh is... or what your spirit is dealing with in conflict with your flesh. Now he tells us why in verse 2. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. For, because... The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. When Paul realizes that he's free from the law of sin and death, his body is still being controlled by it. See, a lot of people want to feel free or act free in their behavior and then declare that they're free. Those people never get free. The people that obtain freedom are the ones that begin to say they're free before their body lines up with it. Now, I don't in any way think that Paul is making this uh, statement of writing these truths as a present tense issue. I think he's t- telling us things that he learned in his past and has, have already overcome before he ever writes a letter to the Romans. But he's telling us how he got to be free. He realized there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus because they've already been made free by the sacrifice of Jesus. They're not going to be made free someday when they get things straightened out. They're not going to be free someday when they live a good enough life to be happy with it. Paul's saying, I'm free by the sacrifice of Jesus from the law of sin and death, even while my body's doing the wrong things. Even when I'm in the middle of the conflict between my spirit and my flesh. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Notice that's a law. Has made me free from the law of sin and death. Spiritual law is greater than the law of death. The Spiritual law of life is greater than the law of death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. See, the problem with the law wasn't with the law itself. The problem with the law was the flesh, the weakness of the flesh. And when you see the word flesh, there's a translation, more than one actually, but one translation that I really like, substitutes instead of flesh the word senses. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the senses, talking about the five physical senses, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin or the margin says as a substitute for sin condemns sin in the senses. Now folks, I want you to, to, to get the point that I'm trying to make here. The flesh is the instructor of the mind. Everything that we know, everything that we learn in university, everything we learned in school, Everything we learn from this natural realm we learn through the five physical senses which makes the body the instructor of the mind. Now you're going to see in a few verses that Paul says the natural mind or the mind that's ruled by the five physical senses is the enemy of God. Let me go ahead and make this statement the mind that is ruled by the five physical senses is the enemy of, the, of hearing the voice of God. It's the enemy. It's the obstacle to being led by the spirit of, of your spirit indwelt by the Holy Spirit. See, there was no problem with the law of God. Paul explains that in detail in the next few chapters. The law wasn't impure. It was given by God, so it had to be righteous. The problem was we couldn't keep it. Why couldn't we keep it? Because of the law of sin and death that was operating in our flesh. That's the same law of sin and death that Paul said hadn't stopped operating in our flesh just because we got saved. What the law could not do because it was weak through the senses, the physical senses, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for or as a substitute for sin, condemn sin in the flesh or sin according to the senses. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, and here's this phrase, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Now here's the question I've got for you. What does it mean to walk after the flesh versus walk after the spirit? Folks, you answer this question and you'll advance by leaps and bounds in spiritual growth and development. Notice the translators uh, capitalized the uh, the letter S in the word Spirit. They clearly thought that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. But that's not the context of what Paul talked about in the previous chapter. Paul's not talking about the conflict between the Holy Spirit and his flesh. He's talking about the conflict between his own spirit and his own flesh. That's why he says, I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but there's another law working in my flesh or in my members. The Holy Spirit doesn't have a problem with flesh. The Holy Spirit doesn't have a problem with your flesh. Your spirit is the thing that has a problem with your own flesh. So when Paul says that God made a new way for us, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit... He's talking about walking after spiritual things rather than fleshly things. In other words, he's talking about walking according to the inward witness or the leading of God from the inside instead of the mind dominated by the five physical senses. Verse 5, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. Again, let's substitute the word senses. Senses. For those that are after the senses do mind the things of the senses. But they that are after the spirit, little less human spirit, recreated human spirit, the things of the recreated human spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. This carnally minded in that translation that that I'm referring to says, for to have your mind ruled by the senses is death. Or to have your mind ruled by the senses is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now again, notice that it's the enemy of God. The reason that the, the mind is the battleground—it's the place where you're going to have to do battle with the enemy because he knows that if he can get your mind dominated by your five physical senses. He can rob you of the plan of God for your life. He can rob you of the victory that Jesus has purchased for us. Now folks, that will never change until Jesus comes and gives us a redeemed body. I'll refer you also to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 or remind you of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. It says, For the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned or understood so if the natural mind the intellect the reasoning capability of man dominated by the five physical senses is the enemy of God then it would be the enemy of the leading of God would it not and that natural man who thinks or reasons according to five physical senses, is unable, incapable of discerning the things of the Spirit of God, That he's never going to be led by the Holy Ghost into victory. Well, then we've got a work to do. See, this ties in with some scriptures that we looked at previous, where the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 3, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, talking about your spirit, and lean not to your own understanding. Why? Because your own understanding is the enemy of God. It's the enemy of the voice of God. Well, then what are we to do? Well, remember over in chapter 12, Paul talks about not being conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus is being tempted of the devil. He's been fasting for 40 days and after that he's hungry. devil shows up and he always shows up at your weak point. devil shows up and says, if you're the son of God, then command these stones to be made bread. You Remember what Jesus answered him? He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now what kind of life is he talking about? Is he saying, no, I don't need to eat bread. My physical body doesn't need bread. I'll just... Take the word of God instead. Well, that wouldn't make sense. He's at the point of physical death if he chooses to go further. What he's saying is that life, just as physical life hinges on food for the body, the life of God, the Zoe life, the life that he came to give us more abundantly, is dependent upon the word of God. You remember also, I hope, that uh, in John chapter 6 and verse 63, Jesus said, The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Well, what kind of life is he talking about? He's not talking about physical life, he's talking about spiritual life. Now, remember what we just read over here in Romans chapter 4. He said, To be carnally minded or to, be, to have your mind dominated by the five physical senses. Is death. It leads you away from everything that God has done for you. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Is life and peace. What then does it mean to be spiritually minded? What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? What does it what do these terms mean? It means to allow your reasoning to be affected by and instructed by the truth of the Word, and not by your five physical senses. Turn back with me to Joshua chapter 1. We talked previously in this series about the saving of the soul. James wrote to the church, people that were born again and spirit-filled. And he told them to receive with meekness the engrafted word, the word of God, which was able to save their souls. Well, that's an interesting thing. Born again, spirit-filled people whose souls haven't been saved. Doesn't mean their spirits haven't been made new. They became new creatures in Christ when they accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. But their souls, their natural way of thinking hasn't been affected by the Word of God. And the Word of God is the only thing that can instruct you and change your thinking so that your mind stops becoming or stops being the enemy of God it starts working in concert with God. Joshua chapter 1. Joshua just taking over for Moses as the leader of the children of Israel. And notice what he says in verse 8. God is speaking to Joshua and he gives him instruction. He said, this book of the law, all they had was the law of Moses back then. We could paraphrase that as to say this word of God. This word of God shall not depart out of your mouth. But thou shalt meditate therein day and night, and notice first and foremost that meditation has something to do with your mouth. Most Christians that aren't familiar with what the Bible says on this subject get afraid when the word meditation comes up because they imagine something like Eastern meditation, where somebody's sitting in a lotus position humming, trying to empty their mind of everything and that becomes the playground for the devil but meditation as far as the Bible's definition is concerned isn't emptying your mind but rather filling your mind with the truth of the word transforming your mind from the way the world thinks where the reasoning faculties are dominated by the five physical senses what we see and feel and hear around us and instead Allowing your mind to be dominated by the truth of God's word. So he says this word of God shall not depart out of your mouth. Now the only way that something can't depart out of your mouth. Is if you keep saying it. And that's one meaning of this word meditate. It means to mutter. To say again to yourself over and over and over again. This word of God shall not depart out of your mouth. But thou shalt meditate therein. For this purpose. That thou mayest observe to do. According to all that's written therein. See, God wants us to be doers of the word, not just hearers. James said that somebody that hears the word and doesn't do it is deceiving himself. He may be equipped with the knowledge of victory, but the knowledge of victory itself won't bring you into that victory. It's the application of the knowledge, the doing of the knowledge that the word of God brings. That establishes victory in your life. So Joshua is told by the Lord. This word of God shall not depart out of your mouth. But thou shalt meditate therein. That or so that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then. Here's the result of that. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. Notice God doesn't even do it for you. God doesn't even make your way prosperous. You do it for yourself. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. One translation says, Thou shalt deal wisely in the affairs of life. Well, you couldn't have good success unless you dealt wisely in the affairs of life, could you? Some people have a hard time with God's idea of prosperity, or God's idea, or, or some people's idea, I guess we should say. That God wants you to be a success no matter who you are and what you do. But if God didn't want you to prosper, why did he tell Joshua how to? If God didn't want Joshua to be a success, why would he give him the key to victory? Or the key to success? And notice, folks, it all comes down to the mind. It comes down to allowing your mind to be dominated by what God says in his word. And not by the five physical senses. Now, that is the single means to unlock your spiritual development. There's no other way to do it. God doesn't handpick certain ones to grow and develop spiritually and others not. He gives the same tools to each and every one of us. And this is the key. Again, in Matthew 4, 4, Jesus said, Man shall not live. He's talking about the life of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, he's saying the word's the key to life, the God kind of life. Jesus said in John six sixty three, The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. In other words, the word of God is the only thing that was made and developed, made and designed to feed to fit, and to develop your spirit. There is no spiritual development apart from the Word. None whatsoever. Now, folks, if God spoke to us in this loud, authoritative voice where it sounds like somebody's standing beside us or behind us, if that's the way He spoke to us all the time, there'd be no need for spiritual development because you hear that whether you developed or not. But we know from experience he doesn't speak that way very often. The examples that we have in Scripture, we can read through them quickly and it makes it seem to us perhaps like they're happening every day or every week. But many of these experiences were, that they had in the, day, the early days of the church are very similar to ours. That There may be one or two occasions in a lifetime What are we going to do the other times in our life? I don't know about you, but I need the leading of God more often than just two or three times throughout my life. What are we going to do? We're going to develop a sensitivity to the, to the Spirit of God, to the inward witness, to the inward voice. And that can come only one way. That's by renewing our mind to the Word. Meditating in the Word of God. I don't know if you know this or not, folks, but you'll get further meditating in the Word than you will reading it. You'll get further meditating in the Word than you will hearing sermons. Thank God for reading the Word. Thank God for sermons. But you'll get further in spiritual development by meditating in the Word than any other thing you can do. I'm so glad God didn't tell Joshua that his key to success, the key to making his way prosperous, was to listen to podcasts. because then you have to decide which podcast no it's, it comes through meditating in the word it comes from meditating in the word God will unlock the secrets of the universe to you in the, just by meditating in the word I'm not talking about thinking about some goofy thing I'm talking about thinking about what he said in the scripture and the more and more you develop yourself to meditate in the word The more of his word, David said it this way. He said, Lord, I have hidden your word in my heart. How do you hide the word in his heart? He said, in another place, I've eaten your word like it tastes as sweet as honeycomb. How do you eat the word of God? By speaking it. How do you hide it in your heart? By speaking it. And remember, speaking it is the way that you meditate. There is no substitution for it, folks. None whatsoever. Thank God for these spectacular occurrences where there are visions and prophecies and the voice of the Holy Spirit. But the number one way he's going to lead you is by the inward witness. The more you draw near to him by the renewing your mind to the word, the more sensitive you'll be to that witness on the inside. The more of his victory you'll walk in on a daily basis. And it all comes through meditating in the Word. Amen? Amen. Amen. Stand up and say this with me. Thank God for the Word. As I meditate on the Word, it becomes a part of my inner man where God can lead me. The Spirit Himself bears witness with my spirit that I am the child of God. He bears witness with my spirit and leads me into victory. The Holy Ghost will guide me into all truth. He'll guide me into the truth of the word. And he'll always lead me into victory. I hear and know the voice of the Holy Ghost always. Always. You start saying that to yourself for a couple of weeks, that'll change everything. Because then you're telling your spirit to listen up. Thank God for the privilege that we have to walk in the Word. Amen. Amen. Say it with me The Lord is good, and His mercy endures forever. Thank you so much for being with us. You're dismissed.